0: and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. Glass that lives. That's the subject of our Radio Cade podcast today. And in the studio
1: with me, I have David Greenspan. David, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's great to see the Cade Museum alive and well. Thank you. Thank you. All right, before we talk
0: about you, David, which is, I know, probably your favorite subject, right? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, of course. (laughs) Let's tell the listeners a bit about bioglass, which is the invention that you're associated with. Just explain to me in very simple terms what is the core technology underneath it and sort of how does it work. And then we'll come back later and talk about the applications and the market and that sort of stuff.
1: Bioglass is a biomaterial, and there are lots of biomaterials. You can think of metals for hips, knees, materials for wound healing, gauze, bandages, all biomaterials, heart valves. Some are synthetic, some are natural. Bioglass is a form of glass, and of course, glass itself, as a chemistry, has lots of different compositions, lots of different properties within that category. Bioglass is unique because when it's implanted, and originally it was used as a bone regenerative material, when it's implanted in bone, it actually reacts like sugar dissolves, well, much more slowly, bioglass, the atoms, the ions in bioglass will react and actually stimulates bone healing. And that was the core aha moment. I see. Uh, so basically that was the, the concept in the original material and from that and from learning about how this glass reacts and how you could change the composition slightly and change the reactions, the field kind of broadened out into applications well beyond just trying to help bone healing.
0: So that sounds both fascinating and incredibly complicated at the same time, because unlike what your earlier examples about sort of saying a metal hip, there you're basically just taking an object, sticking it in the body, and it replaces the previous object. But bioglass really sounds quite different in that it is actually interacting with the body itself.
1: Yeah, it is different. And when Professor Larry Hench actually invented the material, the first experiments, and he had a whole series of thought processes, which actually we can explore that. But it actually wasn't, gee was, I'm going to make a material that's going to bond to bone. It was, I'm going to make a more compatible material that we can put in the body. There's a great quote by Isaac Asimov that I'm going to butcher right now, but basically he said the the most profound moment in science is not Eureka, but gee, that's interesting. (laughs) And that's what it was. I mean, in the late 60s when Larry invented this, we were trying to make a material that the body wouldn't reject. I see. And what he found as a result of the first experiment was that the material actually attached to the bone. And that set an entirely new path for everybody coming later who was developing biomaterials. You make a great point referring to Larry.
0: Larry was the actual inventor, this Larry Hench. We both knew Larry. You knew him much better than I did. Um, and like a lot of inventors, Larry was an interesting guy, shall we say. Can you give our listeners a, a snapshot of maybe Larry's career, but
1: also his personality? Larry was just in awe about the world and everything, and he was curious. And that's the best thing that I learned from Larry, is there's always another question to ask. You do an experiment, you get some information, That information that you get should lead you to ask three or four more questions. He was curious about everything. You knew him, I knew him. He was like a big grown-up kid. And his interests were much more than just beyond science and biomaterials and bone regenerative medicine. I mean, he he painted, of course, Boing Boing the Biana Cat series of books that he wrote and authored. It wasn't enough for him to write the book, but then he thought that he could make science kits for kids in 7th, 8th, ninth grade, to do experiments based on the subject matter of that book. He was an incredible thinker. He was kind, generous, wonderful, and just had a love of life. Truly a Ph.D., a Renaissance man, arts, painting, music, all of that.
0: I remember my wife, Phoebe, and I went and visited him, I guess, probably about five years before he died. And he was showing us around his condo at the time. And he was just, like you said, a little boy. I can't remember what he was showing us, but there were various toys and devices and whatnot. And he was thrilled to be showing them off. And I remember, didn't he also record his own song? Uh, yes, he did. I think you can find it still on YouTube, right? About uh, the, mechanical <laughs> the mechanical heart. <laughs> yes, yes,
1: he did. And in fact, there was a conference for bioceramics. ceramics, Bioglif- right. is bioceramics, and Larry was was one of the co-founders. It was an international conference that rotated between Europe and America and the Far East, Japan or China. And at one of the first ones, which I was lucky enough to attend, the three, Bill Bonfield and Tadashi Kakubo and Larry, decided that at the banquet, the Europeans and the Americans and the Japanese and folks from the Far East and Australia would each get up and do a song. (laughs) (laughs) And that became a regular thing at the banquets. So yeah, he was gregarious. He loved life and
0: it was quite amazing. All right, let's talk about you for a second. You're you're a Brooklyn boy. And tell us, sort of growing up, what were you like as a kid? What were your interests? And any role models? Or were you just sort of like an aimless troublemaker? I, was, uh, I, I understand it's not mutually exclusive. You could be both, but go ahead. Well, yeah, I was
1: um, the first six years of my life. I grew up in the projects. We didn't have a lot of money. And so the projects were a little rougher than a really nice suburban sort of household. And I kind of shied away. But when we did finally, my parents saved enough, we got into a house. It was a huge park that had a dozen baseball fields, three football fields. I was out the back door, and they wouldn't even bother calling me for dinner. we're still talking friends. about Brooklyn. Still Brooklyn, okay. yeah. Marine Park, Brooklyn, born raised, went to James Madison High School, Beta Ginsburg, Chuck Schumer, lots of other famous people graduated from James Madison. I had a large extended nuclear family, and so growing up, I did the normal getting into a little bit of trouble. I wasn't a truant or anything, and and it was nothing conscious, but I just knew I had to do well in school. But my mother also thought, oh, you should do music, you should learn art, and I used to like to draw. So my first love was always sports, but my second first love was painting. I got to take art lessons from a professional artist who was a friend of my mother's, and she was kind of impressionist, and so I studied that, and I loved it, and time would pass. And you're a drummer in a rock band, correct? Yeah, I played music, so I had instrumental music in junior high school, so that I got to play in the orchestra and the band, and I loved drumming, and got together with friends. You know, it was the 60s, 64, 65.
0: So when it kicked Pete Best out of the Beatles, you are on the short list, right? Yeah, you're I was ready. ready to go, yeah, and yeah, you, you know, never got the call. One okay. of
1: one of my early, most humbling experiences was we got to cut a demo record in, BT Puppy Records. The Tokens and the Happenings owned a little record company in Manhattan and we cut a demo and listened to what we sounded like and that's when I realized music was not in my future. (laughs) (laughs) It's a nice way of putting it. But you
0: did decide that glass blowing was in your future. How did that happen and how did that end up into
1: ceramic engineering? So being from New York, we would go on vacation in the summers and the Finger Lakes region in western New York is beautiful so for everybody who hasn't been up there, go. And there's a little town, Corning, New York. And you've probably heard of sure, Corner okay. Glassworks. They had a museum, a glass museum. And part of that back then was Steuben Glass Company. It was blown crystal. Mm-hmm. And it was gorgeous. So we're in the museum. I'm at that point still painting, doing art. So you're in high school at this I was point, in or? just high school, just yeah. Just high school, okay. And there they were doing glass blowing. We watched them for 15 or 20 minutes. And my parents said, let's go get lunch. And I said, Nope. <laughs> And they said, come on, David. And I said, you bring me back something. I'm and they did. They went They went to get lunch. And I sat there for an hour and a half and decided right then and there I wanted to be a glass blow. Watching glass being blown was the most fascinating thing to me.
0: Do you remember what about it that was really compelling? The fact
1: that you could take something that's red hot, yellow glowing, shape it, molded. Put a puff of air into it and it expands and then it cools down and it's malleable and you can make all these beautiful forms and you can see through it and it's shiny. And then at the end of the line, some of the pieces would have engravings and you'd watch these artists engrave. It was pure art. And that trip was obviously the seminal moment in my life. It set and my so course. F- so later on, where did you go to college? Where did you go well, to graduate? I, when I got back, I announced to my whole family I was going to be a glassblower. Mm-hmm. And there were three coronaries because <laughs> a nice Jewish kid from Brooklyn should be a doctor or a lawyer. You're going to starve if you're an artist. And I did really well in school. School was pretty easy for <laughs> me. And I had a cousin said, I know a college that gives courses in glass blowing. This, uh, was on low, yeah, this is on the down, down the low. This is on down low. And so she said, go to Lovejoy's college catalog. I don't know if anybody remembers, they used to have these big catalogs, had all the schools. So we went to the library, Alfred University. Upstate New York, right near the Finger Lakes, not too far from Corning, is a private university. But they had a College of Ceramics. So it was New York State College of Ceramics, but it was administered by Alfred University, and it's the premier college for ceramics. They have the best, number one ceramic art college in the world, I believe. Still do. And, and they, was
0: there a formal relationship with Corning? Did Corning sort no. of
1: fund some of this, or no? No, this was started by a potter because they had terracotta clay at Alfred. But it became this world-class college, and I said, okay, well, if I can't be an artist, there's this technical stuff. And back then, in the late 60s, it was rocket nose cones, this metal oxide semiconductors was just very new. So there was all this new science and technology around ceramic materials in general, and that led me to Alfred. So Brooklyn Boy goes to college in upstate New York,
0: and here we are in north-central Florida. Something happened in between. (laughs) How did you end up in Gainesville uh, working with Larry
1: Hinch? Well, of course, this is the late 60s, so there's the whole Vietnam thing. I wasn't sure I wanted to go work in industry. I loved research, you know, senior projects and doing research. And what I was doing was trying to develop materials for an early artificial kidney. So that kind of brought in the biomedical stuff. And I was looking around to do graduate work in glass. And there's a very limited number of people that do work in In glass. glass. And Larry Hench was, at the time, looking at developing glass that would withstand radiation damage in outer space. Because we had a space program, and they were going to get astronauts up into space, and they had windows, but the windows would fog. So he was working on that, and there were some very specific technical properties about glass. Glass is normally an insulator. Think back to early 1900s, there were all these electrical insulators that were made from glass because it doesn't conduct. Well, Larry, a lot of other people found that you could change the elements in the glass composition and you could conduct electricity slightly or do other things. And Larry was working on that in the late 60s. And so that fascinated me. So I applied to there and to a few other schools, Clemson University and Virginia Polytechnic Institute, which is Virginia Tech now. Basically, what I came down to was I got the best research assistantship offer from the University of Florida. And Larry's work was interesting, so I said, I'm going to go there. So I get to the university, and I sit down with Dr. Hench, and I say, well, I'd like to work on these dielectric properties of glass. And he said, well, I don't have any more funded research there, but I have this new thing that we just started, and it's a ceramic biomaterial. It wasn't called bioglass in 1972 when I started. It was a ceramic biomaterial. He said, you could work on that. He said, but if you want to work on the other stuff, you could do a teaching assistantship. So I could teach labs and then do my studies and then do my research. Or I could have a research assistantship and not bother with the 20 hours a week of labs and grading papers. So I said, yes, I'll do that. Dr. Buddy Clark, who is still at University of Florida in the College of Dentistry, was, I think, the first Ph.D. student. And I was the second working on the development of bioglass here.
0: So from what you describe, David, it sounds like this is a technology that industry would love. Did Bioglass immediately start making a bunch of money? Or tell us about the commercialization. (laughs) Um, Now, I do know Larry really didn't make any money off of his invention uh, for a number of different reasons. But explain to me what happened after it was established as a thing. Who bought it?
1: Sure. I think first, it was 30 years later, overnight success. (laughs) The concept that Larry put forward that a synthetic material could be implanted in the body and stimulate repair was so foreign into everybody working in the field nobody believed it. I mean it literally took 15 years to convince other biomaterials that that researchers worked. that it was real and it worked and, mm-hmm. and because we didn't know how or what. Right. In, in fact, by 1973 Larry had posited his five-stage reaction for bioactive glass First, it releases sodium, and then silicon ions dissolve a little bit, and then they reprecipitate on the surface, and then that causes calcium phosphate to precipitate, and then collagen comes in there, and then it bonds to the bone, and then it crystallizes to hydroxyapatite, which is bone mineral, and all that's well and good, but that's not really the answer. <laughs> but it was put out there, and as you know, if, if you put it out there enough, it becomes real. Right. So it was really tough, but... Sticking with it, finally, we found applications that were necessary where there was an unmet need, basically. And that's what you have to do. It's it's fine to have a material, but you need the unmet need, and that was in dental bone grafting. And but that was already, you said 15 years in? Yeah, 15 years time? as mid to late 80s. Right. There had been an attempt with a startup company to actually commercialize it, but the people were less than upstanding and the company failed miserably and the university got the technology back. And then another group of investors came in who were more reasonable. Larry actually drove that, and we actually started properly going through all the FDA regulations and all the processes to get a material into the marketplace.
0: And this was for dental, dental bone saying? graft. Okay. Yes,
1: and it eventually became what, a toothpaste. Well, or was that, that was a different? different. That, that was, was different. This was called PerioGlass. So it uh, was okay. take the bioglass, crush it up into a powder. And for people who that have periodontal disease, they have bone loss between the teeth and your teeth can fall out and it causes a lot of problems. So you put a little bit of this in that pocket where the bone has resorbed and you suture the gums up over it, cleaned it all out, and it helps regrow the bone and save the teeth. And at the time, there were other calcium phosphate hydroxyapatite bone mineral types of products being used for that. So basically, the synthetic bioglass was pulled along in this developing market for the periodontist and the oral surgeons who were looking for better solutions. And that's what it always is. So
0: I got to ask, David, and you can take the Fifth Amendment on this one, but was the University of Florida any help during this process at all? Or were
1: they just sort of on the sidelines? Or it's a complicated question. They tried to. Like be... I said,
0: you can take the fifth one. No, 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 no.
1: Hindsight's always twenty-twenty. At the time, they were doing, I think, what they felt was best. They were looking. Not proactively, but but if somebody came, they were willing to license technology. Larry always had a hand in continuing to do research that was funded by the company. So companies that licensed the technology to commercialize it had a component that was giving Larry money directed towards some of what the company wanted to do. But back in the 70s and the 80s, and of course, there's a very famous case of another inventor who invented some electrolyte drink, and the university didn't know what to do. So we were all very naive back then.
0: Right. That's one of the reasons I was asking, because I couldn't help but be struck by the timing, in that you said it was 1972, right? When he invented, yeah. And and that's right when the University of Florida chose to sue Robert K., the namesake of this podcast, um, over Gatorade. And so I imagine
1: that wasn't the best environment, maybe, to... Well, but the university did... N- no know. They licensed. I mean, the first license was to an orthopedics implant company, Helmedica, and the university did have a licensing agreement. It wasn't as favorable to the university as it might have been. It wasn't prohibitive to the company, but the university is so much better <laughs> these days at knowing I what think a, do lot to lot learned, a lot of A lot of them, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Tell us about now what applications is Bioglass currently being used in? I know of at least one Novamin, the toothpaste. Novamend, yep.
1: I know there have got to so, be other ones. So Bioglass was something that we trademarked while I was still a graduate student. We needed a name. I can remember it was in the conference room on a Friday afternoon in the materials building, and there was a lot of beer and a lot of graduate students. And we were looking for names for this ceramic biomaterial and bioglass won. And from that one composition, people started playing with others. So 45S5 bioglass is one particular composition. There are a lot of others. The first Materials were solid implants to replace the three smallest bones of the middle ear. The malleus, the incus, and the stapes, middle ear prosthesis. Very successful clinically, not a big market, was not successfully commercialized. Perioglass was, following that was Novabone, which is for orthopedics, and there's a very large market there in spine fusion. Probably 85% of bioactive glass used in orthopedics is used for spinal fusion surgeries. Beyond that is Novamin, very, very, very fine particle of that same composition used for tooth desensitization. But there are also other compositions and other companies. Biomin is a British company that is using bioactive glass and toothpaste. There's a company, Mosai Glass, that produces a borate, not a silicate glass, but a borate glass, which is bioactive, has the same sort of properties that's used in treating chronic wounds. It's FDA-approved. There are other glasses, bioactive glasses, that have silver, which is an antimicrobial, that are used in wound healing and a few other applications. Most of it is heart tissue, some wound healing, and a lot of oral applications. Wow.
0: So quite a few opportunities out there, oh, it yeah. sounds
1: like. yeah so
0: david here's your chance to dispense pearls of wisdom if you were to come across and i'm sure you probably have come across say academic researchers who remind you of yourself years ago or maybe remind you of larry and let's say they've done the same thing they have a technology and they're going to take it to market they're all excited what are the one or two things you would say definitely do this and the one
1: or two things you'd say definitely don't do that First of all, the first thing I tell people is, look, I'm 68 years old. I've been at this for 43, 44 years now. From the time I was a graduate student, I don't think I have any advice that I can give you because <laughs> I've been through a lot. But the biggest, most important thing is as you're developing it, there were so many pressures. Don't fool yourself. Okay. Always tell yourself the truth. Always tell yourself the truth. It'll be what it'll be. The, the second thing is that it is a process right? And that you really, really learn from your failures. And as a species, we're not too good about admitting we're wrong or that our beliefs might not be correct, right? But step back because it's just a process. You won't know it going forward, but 30 years later when you look back, you'll go, aha. We always think when we have a failure, it's the end of the world. So occasionally it is, okay, I'm sorry, but most of the time it's not. If you think your idea is good and if you've really been honest with yourself and you've vetted it, don't worry when you fail. If you fail, you should find out the reasons and overcome that. And there's got to be a way of overcoming it. If your technology is good, if it's true, if it's going to be And successful. that's the first
0: part. If you haven't lied to yourself right <laughs> If you haven't lied to yourself.
1: <laughs> the worst thing you can do in research is create... A dozen experiments, all of which succeed perfectly just according to your theory. That means you haven't had the right hypothesis. Otherwise, it's not research. If everything I did was going to be successful, then I have all the answers. That's That's going nowhere. That's not research. The beauty and the fun of it, I've managed lots of people. And people would come to me with studies that were abject failures, and I would get, like, really excited, and everybody thought I was crazy, which is true, but that's another story. In all seriousness, I'd get excited when something went wrong because we would sit down and go, okay, let's figure out what happened, how and why. It's not going to be easy. It'll be stressful, but we'll learn something from it, and we'll advance.
0: Well, that sounds pretty wise to me, i got to say, David. So I think we're going to figure out a way to track down the individual listeners of this episode. And if any <laughs> of them make it big, we're going to make sure some royalties yeah, go your way. You so now we're ahead. charging you for that advice. You know, it's,
1: it's, that should be the joy of science. Every result should lead you to ask two or three new questions. And, and oftentimes I see people who get a result. Okay, I got the result. Sit back with my arms folded and say, okay, so? And I get these curious looks. I said, so doesn't that bring any other questions to mind? And it should. If you think about where you were 30 years ago, oh, there's some great advance. Well, That's the end. It's never the end. It's never the end, right.
0: Well, unfortunately, it is the end of this episode, so perfect segue. segue. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, David, thanks very much for being on the show. Hope to have you back, and it was really a a pleasure talking to to you. you. Thanks.
1: Radio K would like to thank the following people
0: for their help and support. Liz Gist of the Cade Museum for coordinating inventor interviews. Bob McPeak of Heartwood Soundstage in downtown Gainesville, Florida for recording, editing, and production of the podcasts and music theme. Tracy Collins for the composition and performance of the Radio Cade theme song featuring violinist Jacob Lawson. And special thanks to the Cade Museum for creativity and invention located in Gainesville,
1: Florida.